Hello, my name is Misha Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. Welcome back! Happy New Year! <laughs> I hope you guys are staying safe. Uh, shit's wild out there. Stay home, wear your mask, sanitize the fuck out of everything. Today's episode takes some heart, be light, be merry, because we finally get the son of a bitch, Ted Bundy. Um, no women are harmed in this episode, so thank fuck. If you would like to hear more of me and or just support your girl, please head over to the Patreon, True Crime Aficionados, where there are more episodes and bonus content, earlier access like next week's episode. If you can't wait, head over to the Patreon. If you want, there's also some funny fucking images from today's episode. So have the Instagram up on your phone so you can check out and see what I'm talking about without having to pause and go and blah, 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 blah. Please rate and review on Spotify. Please give me, you know, all of the stores. So I work hard. Reading 11 books on this bum bitch Ted Bundy is no easy feat, but I do it for you and because I love you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And as always, trigger warning for actually nothing because this bitch gets his ass handed to him this episode. (laughs) All right, enough is enough. Let's get into it. By Friday night, August 15th, 1975, Ted Bundy had at least 22 murders under his belt. And that's what we're aware of, because remember, this bitch was also a pedophile and he did not like outwardly confess to his pedophilia because he knew the stigma of like, if you're a pedophile in prison, your ass is literally fucking grass. So yeah, like he, who knows, 22, maybe more. According to statements made later, Bundy maintained that on that Friday night of August 15th, he was simply you know, cruising around in his dependable Volkswagen bug, just smoking some pot, you know, just fucking L riding. (laughs) Ted Bundy wasn't just a successful killer, but he was also a pathological liar. On this particular evening, Ted Bundy was sitting in his car with the headlights turned off, smoking a joint, studying a map of the Salt Lake City area, AKA getting high and casing out the next area he would go prowling for a victim. It was 2.30 in the morning and Bundy was fucking shook when headlights suddenly, boom, like went on in his direction. So Bundy being the smooth criminal that he was, did the one thing that anyone in his situation would have done. He slammed on the gas and lurched forward to get away. (laughs) You know, subtle. I'm imagining like, just fucking getting out of there. So, you know, being the criminal mastermind that he is, he kept his headlights off as he attempted to speed away. Subtle. So subtle. (laughs) What Ted Bundy did not realize is that the individual in the car was Sergeant Bob Hayward of the Utah Highway Patrol and that this traffic violation, driving without his headlights on uh, and hotboxing his fucking car, it gave the sergeant leeway to pursue Ted Bundy and start, you know, going on the chase. So Sergeant Hayward like trained his spotlight on Bundy's Volkswagen 2.30 in the morning and they're like speeding through the streets like Ted Bundy sped through not one but two stop signs. Yeah, (laughs) 
And Sergeant Hayward, he had been patrolling like his own neighborhood where he actually lived. And he thought that this Volkswagen with no headlights, like lurking there at 230 in the morning, belonged to the individual responsible for a recent string of break-ins in his neighborhood. So Ted Bundy turned on his headlights once he saw the highway in view, which like, (laughs) again, subtle. But Sergeant Hayward was on that ass and he wasn't letting Bundy get away. So realizing that his escape was just not possible, Ted Bundy pulls his Volkswagen over into an abandoned gas station lot. And Ted Bundy felt that he could use his old, you know, razzle-dazzle Bundy charm to talk his way out of this conundrum. However, Sergeant Bob Hayward wasn't some, like, child or some intoxicated person at the beach. He's a grown-ass man who's like, this nigga's trying to fucking rob some places in my development. Like, we're not doing this. Uh, Bundy already threw the pot out of the window during this mini chase, but his car still 100% smelled like pot because he was sitting there fucking hotboxing it. Just imagine if he was black. This is wild. Sergeant Hayward smartly already called for backup, and he watched as this man with, quote, fuzzy shoulder-length hair exited his vehicle. (laughs) This man was dressed in a turtleneck. (laughs) It's August. Okay, he's wearing a turtleneck, blue jeans and tennis shoes. Sergeant Hayward was wary of this man and exited his car with his gun in his hand. I am not pro gun, but I mean, imagine if he would have got Bundy. So Sergeant Hayward immediately asked to see this man's license. Also, he got out of his car. Ted Bundy, like he got pulled over and got out of his car. What? He got out of his car and walked. He imagine if he was black. So the sergeant asked for Bundy's license and with a smile, you know, he acquiesced. Sergeant Hayward like used his flashlight and read Theodore Bundy in his address. And he asked like what he was doing in this area and then reminded him of the numerous traffic violations he just committed. Again, imagine if he was black. He was fucking smoking pot like while driving. uh, Well, he wasn't technically driving, but whatever, in his car, driving without headlights, running through two stop signs and not pulling over for a cop and then gets out of his car, starts approaching a screams in Black Lives Matter. So Bundy said that he was just driving around at 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, sure, Jan. This bitch was looking for another victim. (laughs) Oh my God. So we, we know he was looking for another victim because Sergeant Hayward ordered Bundy to like stay next to his cop car while he investigated Bundy's Volkswagen. Again, he's not like handcuffed. He's not patted down. He's not searched, whatever. The sergeant used his flashlight and noticed strangely that the passenger seat of the Volkswagen was detached and just lying in the fucking back seat. And in that gap was a brown gym bag that was just open. So already terrifying. You're like, what the fuck? This bitch like dissembles his fucking car. And then there's a <laughs> there's a bag filled with, oh my God, it's scary. One white nylon rope, approximately seven inches in length. So white rope, a ski mask, a brown cotton glove, a pry bar, a black leather ski glove, a pair of pantyhose with eye and nose holes cut out, a box of glad trash bags, a flashlight, specifically eight strips of white sheet material cloth of like varying lengths, in the trunk of his car, a pair of fucking handcuffs, literally a murder kit, like pantyhose with eye holes cut out. And I've put that photo on the Instagram. You have to see this murder kit. It's terrifying. 
So while Officer Hayward was inspecting Bundy's fucking murder kit, the other officers arrive. The only name that's important is an officer named Officer Andrak, and they showed up to the scene for a backup. So although Bundy was probably, you know, like shitting his fucking pants, the officer said that Bundy consented to the search of his car and he was calm and friendly during the encounter. When questioned as to why Bundy was in the area during that hour, 2.30 in the morning, since Bundy is a fucking lying liar who lies all the fucking time, he said that he was seeing a film at a nearby drive-in. That film wasn't even playing at the drive-in. Like, that's the... I was, I was going to see a movie officer with his fucking fake British accent pretending to be a law. Oh, what a stupid bitch. What a stupid bitch. So officer Hayward told Ted Bundy, I'm going to arrest you tonight for evading an officer, Mr. Bundy, but I intend to ask the county attorney for a complaint against you for possession of burglary tools. Sure. So that's how like new to the game that these cops were to murder kids that they he didn't even recognize that this is what he had. He was like, you have burglary tools? No, that's a murder kit. What do you need? What do you need sheets for? What do you need? Pl- like, no, absolutely not. Oh my God. So Ted Bundy was arrested, booked, and then for some reason released on his own recognizance. Yup, that happened from the Salt Lake County Jail. Bullshit. And you can check the Instagram also for his mugshot, ugly bitch with his fucking frizzy hair. Fuck you. Um, His creepy fucking murder kit was admitted into evidence and thankfully he never saw it again. <laughs> oh my God. Um, before Bundy left the Salt Lake City Police Station to walk back to his apartment because they also like impounded his car, I guess. Uh, Sergeant Hayward reminded Bundy of his intention to charge him with possession of burglary tools. Like, listen, young man, although you may be leaving the police station, we're letting you go on your own recognizance. Be good now, but don't worry, we're, we're going to come back and arrest you for something else. I, I just, I personally don't understand whatever. But on a happy note, guys, this, this arrest of Ted Bundy was the beginning of the end. Like, <sighs> so we're going to get a little nerdy now. I'm going to talk nerdy to you uh, because it is 1975. This is the first time that at least for the Seattle Police Department, they used a computer to help them. (laughs) I know, it's 1975, but they used a computer for the first time to help them, like, crack down on the Ted case. So, by June 1975... Officers in Seattle, so Detective Bob Keppel and his team, the TED Task Force, they had gathered over 30 credible lists for investigative purposes for the TED murders. And these lists included each of the surrounding universities, like class rosters that included the victims, the victims' address books, people who were vendors around the locations where these students had disappeared, where these women disappeared individuals who received traffic tickets near the body recovery sites and sites where the victims had been reported missing. And the officers began to become curious as to who kept appearing on lists, like whose names do they keep seeing over and over? And let's try to shorten it that way. (laughs) Bob Keppel says that his sergeant once said, in terms of using the computers, he goes, this ain't no fucking chicken larceny. (laughs) What does that mean? 
but this ain't no fucking chicken larceny we got to use whatever methods we can to figure this out chicken larceny i cannot so bob keppel says up until 1975 there had been virtually no independent use of the computer in criminal investigations and there certainly hadn't been any programs designed specifically to catch a killer so the employees who worked for the king county system services said that their mainframe computer at the time was only used for maintaining payroll records and for other non-criminal records. So they were just like, what do you, what's, what's happening? (laughs) Detective Bob Keppel said, the decision to use a computer to help crack the TED cases in the Pacific Northwest was indeed a pioneering effort in murder investigation. And quite frankly, a stroke of genius. The traditionalists of our department looked at us like others probably looked at Thomas Edison or the Wright brothers, questioning our sanity. Our effort was mocked by some police supervisors. Has the computer caught Ted yet? (laughs) But our pioneering efforts soon disproved this naysaying and led us to great success. So the detectives gave each of the lists that they had, those 30 lists, um, an alphabetical letter. So list A, list B, C, so on. And then they entered every name under that list under A. They ran like some cross checks to get the list of names that appeared on the greatest number of blah, 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 blah. So this became the weighted list of the likeliest suspects to investigate further. And then this manifest list was born. And it's just a few letters. So the first one, list A, had 3,500 suspect names gathered through June 1975. B, 5,000 mental patients released between 1964 and 1974. C, 41,000 registered owners of Volkswagens, a lot of people. D, 300 campus vendors at the University of Washington. E, 2,162 guests at the Mar C Hotel in Issaquah. So, you know, they're checking everything. F, 4,000 classmates of Linda Ann Healy, the first known victim of Ted Bundy. G, 1,500 transfer students among all the universities, and H, 600 participants in the Rainery Brewery picnic. So when the alphabet had been exhausted, the coding format continued with AA, AB, AC, blah, 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 until they came to the end of their groupings, and they had more than 300,000 names. So that's way too many. So these lists of names related directly to the activities and surrounding areas where each of the victims had disappeared and then where their bodies were discovered. One technique the detectives used was to analyze the routes to and from the murder and the dumping sites. And Bob Keppel says, for example, Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared after a meeting at the main library at her college, the Central Washington State College, on April 17th, 1974. After analyzing her disappearance site, we identified several sources of names. Susan's address book, fellow students and instructors, people who attended the meeting that night she disappeared, those registered for library privileges, which I wonder if Ted Bunny's name was on that list, traffic citations issued in the area at that time, transfer students from the surrounding three universities who transferred to and from her college, and then Similar lists with all of those criteria were made for all of the other victims. So detectives then asked the computer programmers to print out each suspect with the most alphabetical letters behind his name. Bob Keppel says, the realistic problem for system services personnel were enormous. Programming the computer to meet our needs and worst of all, key punching into the computer over 300,000 names. (laughs) onto their individual punch cards. 
The county's computer hardware consisted of conveyor belts and rolling ball bearings. I don't know what any of this means. Basically, it's just it's fucking insane. And the entire process to do all of what I just said took over a month to complete. Like, I'm so grateful for uh, technology today because I don't have the patience for that shit. But since this process was so laborious, it periodically delayed county employees getting their paychecks for a few hours. So, <laughs> so people are already like shitting on them for using a computer and now it's fucking with their coin. I mean, you know, it was it was the fucking whole thing. It was a whole thing using the computer. So it took the quote unquote computer experts an entire week to identify the names with two or more alphabetical letters by their name. The results were from 300,000 people to 1,800 people. You know, so that was still way too many for three detectives to investigate. So they asked the computer how many names had three letters, how many had four and so on. And then over time, the list kept dwindling down and down until they identified 25 people who had four or more letters next to their names. And Ted Bundy was one of those people. So Ted Bundy, he was on the AAA list because he was in the suspect file three times. He was on the C list because he was a registered owner of a Volkswagen. He was on the FFF list because he was in three of Linda Ann Healy's psychology classes at the University of Washington. Um, And Linda Ann Healy is the first known victim where Ted Bundy broke into her basement apartment, somehow, you know, knocked her unconscious possibly and took her away, sexually assaulted, killed her. And She was the victim who was going to make dinner for her family. And then the police were like, maybe she got a nosebleed and whatever. And finally, he was on the queue list because he was observed by an anonymous citizen driving a Volkswagen bug near where two women disappeared. Okay, so three days later, after they got this final list of, you know, 25 names, it took them a very long time. And you should read the book, The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer by Dr. Keppel, because I like tried to really condense that down, but they... It was innovative what they did. Like, it was actually very interesting to see how they programmed the computer and had all these lists. And I hope I did a good job explaining what they did, but it's like a whole chapter. It's so crazy. But three days later, that Tuesday, detectives from the surrounding counties and departments gathered for their weekly meeting in Salt Lake City. So we're flying from Seattle to Salt Lake City. And all these cops and detectives got together to exchange information about cases, suspects, anything that maybe would be helpful with their own open investigations, which is so smart that they're like saying like, hey, do you, I, I had this crime occur. Like, does this sound familiar to any of you guys? Like, oh, I had that same shit. Maybe it's the same guy. Boom. Fucking smart. But this was like a weekly meeting that they did. Fucking cool. Detective Andrak, the man who got called in for backup when Ted Bundy was arrested, he was at this meeting and he told the officers there about a law student, whatever, named Theodore Bundy, who was arrested that weekend with handcuffs in the trunk of his car and a gym bag full of quote unquote burglary tools. It was a fucking murder kit. Detective Andrak told the other officers that the bag of burglary tools may have a deeper meeting. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> but he said, quote, there's something more here. I thought for a while Bundy was an armed robber, but we didn't find a weapon. They found an ice pick and a crowbar. But anyway, but we didn't find a weapon. He's just not your ordinary prowler. Some of the stuff we found in his car is obviously for tying up someone 
I don't know, but this Bundy is the strangest man I've ever met. (laughs) Detective Jerry Thompson of the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office, he was at this meeting and Detective Thompson was investigating the abduction into Carol Durange and the murder of Debbie Kent. So he was there and he recognized Ted Bundy's name and made a connection between the Volkswagen and the handcuffs. Right, 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 right. Detective Thompson asked this other guy, Andrak, to explain, like, what do you mean by strange? And Andrak said, I used to be in the Marine Corps. You meet a lot of strange people in the corps. I don't know. It's just a gut reaction. This man's into something big. So after the meeting, Detective Thompson of Salt Lake City, he went back to his office where he kept a Rolodex of index cards with names of suspects. And he in that Rolodex, he found a card with Ted Bundy's name. Bundy's name was given to the Salt Lake City authorities by Captain Nick Mackey, Bob Deckel's boss in Seattle, when he learned that Ted Bundy moved to Utah for law school. And at the time, Detective Thompson spoke to Detective Keppel, so Salt Lake City and Seattle are talking to each other, but they agreed that this law student with no priors, this white dude, did not seem like a likely suspect. On August 19th, 1975, Officer Kevin Shaw, I cannot pronounce this man's name. (laughs) Sorry to this man. We're going to call him Officer Kevin K. Zog. Um, He was in the TED task force, like manning the phone lines. Remember, they're getting over like Remember one asshole was calling 600 times. You know what I mean? Like the phone was going off. So Officer Kevin, he was like, you know, Ted Task Force, what can I do for you? And it was Detective Ben Forbes, the partner of Jerry Thompson from Salt Lake City. He was calling concerning Ted Bundy and his recent arrest several days earlier. So Task Force Kevin was like, hey, Forbes, like, why are you calling me about Ted Bundy? What what do you want? And Detective Forbes says, well, you asked me to call. So (laughs) Task Force Kevin is like, what? Apparently, back in October 1974, Detective Forbes received a call from Detective Randy Hirschmeyer. We heard his name before of King County Department of Public Safety because Liz called him. So this was way long before Detective Kevin like joined the task force, which explains why he didn't know what the fuck was going on. But at that time, Detective Hirschmeyer had received a call from Liz Kendall, Ted Bundy's girlfriend, and reported that Ted had moved from Seattle to Salt Lake City. I remember Liz was like, I was told that he went on vacation. He didn't do his job. Bitch, he did his job. He was just tired of you calling him over and over. Like, don't you have a job? Anyway, so Liz, like she had at the time read the stories of the missing and murdered women in Salt Lake City. And she noticed that a pattern was similar, if not identical to what happened to the missing and murdered women in Seattle. And she wanted to alert the police in Utah. Thank you. So Liz had previously reported her suspicions about Ted to the task force, along with one of his college professors. And from these leads, the task force created a case jacket on Ted Bundy, who at the time was just like another one of the 3,500 suspects. So he got lost in the shuffle. Detective Hirschmeyer followed up with Liz Kendall's tip, called Salt Lake City, spoke to Forbes, who stored that information on his desk in the Rolodex. And this information sat on the desk for almost an entire year before like, oh my God, isn't it crazy? So in Seattle, after Detective Kevin hung up the phone with Salt Lake City detectives, he went to the newly alphabetized file cabinet to grab Ted Bundy's file. However, it just wasn't there. So he's like, ah, what the fuck? By some stroke of like divine intervention, his partner, Detective Kathy McChesney, she had Ted Bundy's file like on her desk. It was the next file up that she was about to start looking into. It was the seventh file of the top 100 
like Ted's that they were going to look into. Like, what are the odds of that? Like, as he got a fucking phone call from Salt Lake City to be like, hey, you should look into this guy. He's going to look at the file and his partner's like, I'm literally about to look into this guy. Crazy. Detective Keppel says... Kathy McChesney was ready to begin the systematic evaluation of suspect Ted Bundy because our plan was to subject each of the top 100 suspects to a thorough investigation of their lives, their whereabouts during the murders, and when they were the victims were first reported missing, their relationships with any other victims, and their whereabouts since bodies had stopped turning up in King County. Ted Bundy might have been just another name that had been buried in our files for almost a year, but our computer picked him out from all of our lists and all of the log tip sheets and placed him, Ted Bundy, among the top candidates. Only we didn't know until Detective Ben Forbes called our office to report these arrests that Ted Bundy was the dude. Ah! <laughs> So, on Thursday, August 21st, 1975, Detective Ondrak, the man who was there at Bundy's arrest for burglary tools and was at that big meeting, he pulled up to Bundy's Salt Lake City apartment, deadass pulled the fuck up. It's uh, 565 First Avenue, and I believe it's still there. You can see it on Google Maps, which I don't, is it still there? Let me check. Hold up. Okay, I just checked. It's still there bro. And like it went off the market a few years ago. Fucking haunted. Why would you not bulldoze that down? You can't see the house because it has a bunch of privacy trees, obviously, because like people like me (laughs) are like on Google Maps trying to look at it. Bro, he kept fucking like bodies and heads in the walls there. They no, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Who's living in that house? Yo, are people okay? Hell fucking no. So whatever. Officer Ondrak pulled the fuck up to Ted Bundy's apartment that still exists, the house, to serve him the arrest warrant for the burglary tools, aka the murder kit. Ted Bundy was in the process of refinishing an old table that he recently fucking stolen from someone and then quickly ran upstairs before the police were knocking on his door. I don't know, like, was he on the lawn? I imagine if he's refinishing a table that I'm at. I don't know. I'm not a woodworker. I don't do shit, but I imagine that smells bad. So you have to do that outside or, but did the cops like see this bitch like polishing a table and then then, like run away? (laughs) Like It's so weird. So when Bundy answered the door, detective Ondrak produced the arrest warrant and said to him, I told you I get one. (gasps) Yes. So Ted Bundy (sighs) screams in white privilege was allowed to change his clothes before he was handcuffed and then placed in the back of the squad car. (sighs) Reminds me very much of like taking fucking bitches to go get food after they murder black people. But anyway, but this would be Ted Bundy's second trip to jail in less than a week. So the first was when he was arrested for evading an officer and now this one. So Ted Bundy, he kept his cool in the back of the squad car. And that caused Detective Ondrak to literally just keep saying to him, you know, I can't figure it out. I mean, you're a nice guy. I just can't figure this out. Why? Why are you? Why? Why? What's with the hard on for the nice guy? Like, he's not a nice guy. He's a phony bitch who's pretending to not. What do you think he's going to be walking around with a fucking hunchback and a lazy eye drooling at the mouth every time he wants to murder people? Like, the point is to blend in so he can be successful. Jesus Christ, these people are. Let. Hmm. Anyway, (laughs) they arrived at the police station where Ted Bundy had his mugshot taken again. And after being booked, he was taken into an interview room where Detective Forbes was waiting for him. So the man who like called and was like, 
hey, Seattle, like we got your fucking dude. Ted Bundy waived his right to have an attorney present because he was so fucking arrogant and thought he was like smarter than the police. He was like, I'm a law student, which bro, if he's really a law student, why would you waive your right to have an attorney present? Because the white privilege of it all, maybe because my black ass is like, nope, nope, give me my fucking lawyer. But yeah, he thought he could beat the police at their own game because he thought he was smarter than them. Whatever, I'm not gonna tell criminals to do crime better, keep being dumb. Uh, Detective Forbes interrogated Ted Bundy regarding the burglary tools found in his car on the night of his arrest. Bundy like fucked up and couldn't keep his lie straight because he's a lying liar who lies. And the night of the arrest... He told Detective Ondrak that he found the handcuffs at like a local dump while he told Detective Forbes that he purchased them. So he can't even get his fucking lie straight. Detective Forbes asked Ted Bundy about the fucking terrifying pantyhose mask in his car, like the pantyhose that had the eye and mouth nose holes, whatever cut out. It's terrifying. You know what this bitch fucking said? You know what he had the actual caucasity to say? Ugh. Ted Bundy said he had seen a film about mountain climbers who wore nylon liners inside of their regular ski mask for added warmth. He claimed that he was simply adapting the idea for his own protection when he had, you know, winter term evening classes at law school. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> this is what he came up with. This is what he came up with. He was arrested on August 15th, it's the 21st. He had five days to come up with this. Okay, fucking bitch ass idiot piece of shit. So Ted Bundy said that the lengths of rope and shreds of sheets, you know, were in his car, not to tie someone up. No, no, no. He needed them to tie up the oars of his rubber raft because he was such an avid rafter. Come on, keep up, you stupid cops. Oh my God. Ted Bundy, this fucking psycho, he also claimed that the ice pick that was in his car, it was a, quote, common household piece of equipment. It, it, what? He was like, oh no, it has no sinister meat. An ice pick? It's just a common a common household you don't have one come on you're slacking stupid cops so <laughs> detective forbes is like interrogating this bitch and like getting these responses to these questions and he was so upset that to throw bundy off his game he just blurted out my game is homicide <laughs> my game is homicide <laughs> and he told ted bundy that he was also a suspect in the attempted kidnapping and murder case for carol deranch so bundy was like Oh, shit. Damn. Okay. And before the conclusion of this interrogation, Detective Forbes gave Ted Bundy a consent form to sign, granting the officers the right to search his apartment. And this arrogant, dumb twat muffin not only said yes, but he signed the fucking release. But again, trash because he was arrested like the first time five days ago. So who knows what evidence he got rid of in five days? You know, like he was waiting. He, he knew this was happening. At 6.30 p.m., Ted Bundy was escorted back home by the cops with Detective Jerry Thompson, the man who was investigating the kidnapping of Carol Durant, the woman who like got out of his car. And he was following in his squad car. They were going to conduct a search of this apartment right then and there hoping that he wouldn't have time to hide away any more incriminating evidence since it had already been like five days, but you know, here we are. Kevin Sullivan writes, as they entered Bundy's second floor apartment, Jerry Thompson was struck by the cleanliness and orderliness of the law student's dwelling. All of the furniture had been dusted, all of the dishes were clean and put away, and there wasn't a crumb to be seen anywhere in the kitchen. In his closet, 
His clothes were neatly hanging and evenly spaced apart. Okay. His shoes were perfectly lined up in a row. (laughs) And while gazing down though at Bundy's tidy shoe collection, Jerry Thompson noticed a pair of patent leather shoes, just the type that Carol Durant said her would-be abductor was wearing. When Detective Thompson returned to Ted Bundy's apartment the next day, the fucking shoes were gone. What's the, did they not take pictures? Like, did he not write it down? Like, I don't know. This is just like, what's going on? Like, why does he have time to evenly space his clothes apart? That's some fucking psycho shit. Like, did he have a fucking measuring tape? Like, they must be two inches apart. And like, so the entire time that the cops were searching Ted Bundy's apartment, he would not shut the fuck up. Suspiciously, he neither denied his guilt nor proclaimed his innocence. He didn't even ask the officers why they were in his apartment or what they were looking for. You, are you fucking joking? If the cops fucking arrested me and then like, we're like, we're gonna come to insert your apartment, I would be like, for what? What are you looking for? Like, what? He, oh, I don't know. <sighs> but we know why. It's because he already knew what the cops were doing. So, Instead, Detective Thompson said that Bundy, quote, kept up a steady stream of conversation the entire time the detectives were there. He kept saying things like, he kept saying things like, I know you guys have it tough and I'll I'll help you in any way I can. I know this work is rough. I was on the Seattle Crime Commission. Like, shut the fuck up, you fucking bitch. Detective Thompson said he was chattering like a magpie. So in his apartment, the detectives found the following objects and considered them, quote, items of interest. A book titled The Joy of Sex, a roadmap of the state of Colorado, a Colorado ski country guide for 1974 and 75, a brochure from the Bountiful Recreation Center, a copy of a Chevron gas bill listed to Ted Bundy, and a copy of a phone bill from the month of June that listed a phone call to Denver, Colorado. And these items immediately stood out to Detective Thompson because earlier in that search, he asked Ted Bundy if he had ever been to Colorado, and this stupid bitch lied to his face and said no. When asked if he had any friends or knew anyone in Colorado, he also said no. And yet he had roadmaps of Colorado, gas receipts from Colorado, phone records that linked him calling the state, but he had never been there, has no friends there. Okay, sure, Jan, like you fucking stupid bitch. So to explain this away, the stupid bitch, Ted Bundy said, the maps and guides of Colorado were simply left in his apartment by, quote, a friend of mine who was talking about how good the skiing was over there. The brochure found in the pile of shit from Colorado was an advertisement for the play at Beaumont High School where he kidnapped and murdered Debbie Kent hours after Carol Durant escaped. He kept the brochure for the fucking play. Like, what? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what? He's so stupid. He had five days, five days, and he kept it. He's so fucking arrogant. What a dumb bitch. Ted Bundy said, quote, a friend of mine left it there. Some kid of his or something that went up there to that kind of deal. And that is like verbatim what he said. And the author makes a point to say like, yeah, when he was nervous, he just said random shit. So whatever that means. After the search of his apartment, Bundy granted the detectives after they already found one piece of incriminating evidence or basically a shit ton of incriminating evidence. He granted them permission to photograph his shitty fucking Volkswagen saying, yeah, no problem. No problem. Whatever you need, big guys. 
After the photos of his piece of shit car were taken, Bundy was taken back to jail, but then somehow made bail by the morning. I don't know how, I don't know who, probably one of his fucking side chicks used her little coin to bail this stupid bitch out and he was back on the fucking streets. The next day, August 22nd, Bundy hired a defense attorney, a man named John O'Connell. And this fucking guy, of course, immediately started to have a fucking pissing contest with the cops. (laughs) Kevin Sullivan writes, After informing Detective Forbes that he had advised his client not to talk to the police, John O'Connell also said he was, quote, rescinding the search warrant the individual had signed. (laughs) Detective Forbes told Bundy's attorney that the search warrant was already completed, girl. Like, did your client not already tell you that? So we don't even need it anymore. Like, we already did it. (laughs) And apparently feeling the need to make it abundantly clear... Bundy's attorney O'Connell repeated that he didn't want his client talking to the police and he blurted out, what are you looking for? You're certainly not looking at him in regards to the murder of all these girls, sis. The detective told the lawyer, um, no, but we do want to speak to Bundy because it's kind of important. We should we should talk to him to clear him from some crimes we think he may have fucking committed. And then his attorney just repeated, I've advised him to not talk to you. Like, you know, you can also talk to someone with an attorney present. Like, if the point is to clear your name, to be like, hey, I didn't do this, why not just talk with an attorney present and be done with it? Just saying. Like, if someone was like, hey, Mish, did you murder someone? I'd be like, fucking no. Like, unless the bitch had it. No. (laughs) So... After Detective Thompson found all of that incriminating shit in Bundy's car, he immediately called the Colorado investigator, Mike Fisher, our fucking homie, and was like, girl, I found some tea in Bundy's house related to Colorado, even after he said he's never been there and has no friends there. So it was very obvious to everyone that Bundy was a lying liar who lies about not having ties to the state of Colorado. When Detective Thompson mentioned that one of the ski guides found in Ted Bundy's apartment had a mark on it, like a little X mark, over a place called the Wildwood Inn, mm-hmm, Mike Fisher shouted, you're shitting me, Jerry. That's the place where our girl Karen Campbell went out. And to refresh your memory, Karen Campbell was the woman who went to the like medical convention with her like live-in partner at the time and she was having like a stomach ache or wasn't feeling well and like went upstairs to get a magazine and was just fucking never seen alive again and then a few days later was found like dead on the side of the road so yeah like ted bundy kept the travel guide and put a fucking x mark over the wildwood inn where he murdered a woman like (laughs) this bitch is so stupid (laughs) and he kept the fucking advertisement for the play where he murdered like i just i can't i can't so mike fisher the investigator in colorado copied down ted bundy's credit card information so he could ask quote a friend to pry into the gas station records to see if Ted Bundy had ever purchased gas in the state of Colorado, like just to be safe. So shit's heating the fuck up. Like he's, he's stupid. He kept gas receipts, bro. Like I just, what a dumb bitch. (laughs) 
so while all of this is going on, Ted Bundy that summer had begun to drink heavily. You know, I think some I think some things were on his mind. I think some things were weighing him down. And it was like a noticeable downward spiral that people started to notice. They were like, what the fuck is going on? So a woman named Leslie Knutston, Cutston, whatever, Leslie, she was uh, enjoying his company that summer, whatever that means, while he was engaged to Liz. And Leslie met Ted Bundy at a party given by the Salt Lake County prosecutor, Paul Von Dahm, which why was he there? Whatever. He's like schmoozing with people because everyone's beguiled by this basic bitch. And at the party, she told detectives that the sex between them was, quote, normal, but that his drinking and his extreme mood swings were starting to worry her. Kevin Sullivan writes, during these times, he talked frequently about Liz Kendall, like to his other girlfriend. And after his arrest in August, Bundy blurted out one evening to Leslie, my world is falling apart. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't go around fucking murdering people, you stupid bitch. Like, who gives a shit? Fuck you. Uh, Bundy told Leslie that he wanted... (laughs) Bundy told her that he wanted to one day be the governor of Washington. (laughs) Can you imagine, though, if he would succeed? Jesus, how many of these other corrupt-ass politicians are getting away with crimes? Mm, You know what I mean? So, anyway, Leslie was not impressed. And over time, she grew tired of his bullshit, his emotional baggage, and she broke up with his bum bitch ass, which, like, good for you, Leslie. Like, fuck that. Um, And a side note to the Leslie story is a very interesting comment that her husband, sorry, her ex-husband gave to the police concerning Ted Bundy. (laughs) And the comment was regarding how much he cleaned his raggedy ass Volkswagen. So according to a Seattle department interview in March of 1976, Mr. Kunsten saw Bundy vacuuming his tan Volkswagen bug with the seats out. And Mr. Kunsten stated that this struck him as being a little strange at the time because he calls his ex-wife like earlier and they were talking during the day. And she stated at that time that Bundy was also out cleaning his car. So he was like, what the fuck? And he thought to himself, why would anyone clean a ratty Volkswagen so often? <laughs> so Ted Bundy, to kind of elaborate more on his, you know, dating, his fucking dating game during the time, I will now read from the 1976 Psychological Assessment of Ted Bundy by Dr. Al Carlisle. So Ted continued his classes in the spring of 1975 and went to summer school. By the time fall came, he was again excited about going to school. He had made friends and had been going out with three or four girls in Salt Lake City, reassuring himself that these were only friendships. However, I talked to a couple of girls that went out with him. They talked about a sexual relationship they had with him. I spoke to the mother of one of these girls. She said, my first impression of him was that he was good looking and charming. He took my daughter out a couple of times in November 1974, coincidentally around the same time of the attempted kidnapping of Carol Durant and the murder of Debbie Kent. And then he disappeared and I didn't see him until the following spring. Then one day he dropped by my apartment on his bicycle casually, like nothing had happened. In July of 1975, I put on a going away party for my daughter, Judy. She was a good cook and she would circulate around and talk to all of the guests. That night, they stayed up all night. Ted got cozy with Judy's friend, Tasha. And when Judy went back east, Ted Bundy dated Tasha for about a week. Then all of a sudden, nothing. It was just like with Judy. Tasha came up one night and said, I don't understand Bundy. I said to her, there's something strange about him. 
You can never get close to that boy. He's nice, but he's not warm. Tasha says she tried and talked to him about his past and what his childhood was like, but he never would. We would try to psych him out, wondering what in the world it was with him. Tasha said Ted would ride his bicycle around Murray Park a lot. That's a long way from his apartment. Tasha had gotten quite intimate with him. Both Tasha and Judy, my daughter, thought a relationship was beginning to develop, but then after a few dates, he just dropped out of sight. I'm a person who likes to put my arms around people. And when I put my arms around Bundy, he just wasn't warm. So Dr. Al Carlisle also says, the summer and fall of 1975 were very stressful for Ted. In late June, Ted met a 31-year-old single mother. He seemed to be fairly sociable, but somewhat aloof. She began dating him, and at times they would go on outings. Ted always allowed her seven-year-old son to be with them. He began drinking more heavily, and on one occasion, he passed out drunk in her apartment. She told an investigator that he frequently talked to her about his girlfriend, Liz, and how she had lost respect for him because he dated other girls while being engaged to her. Sorry, sweetie, but you're one of those girls. He talked about his political aspirations to someday be governor of Washington. He told her that his world was falling apart. She broke off their relationship because he was becoming increasingly moody and erratic in his behavior. Out of control. Ted was reaching out for something that summer, but he wasn't finding it. One woman I talked to in Salt Lake said he was always polite around women. He was always immaculate. He was always very outgoing. And he was always in control. Rarely did he seem bitter or depressed. And he had a good sense of humor. Importantly, he felt there was no difference between right or wrong. Ted came to her house on one occasion and parked in front for five minutes before coming in. She observed him out of her window. His chest and shoulders were heaving. When he came in, he denied there was anything wrong. The picture I was getting of Ted Bundy did not add up to a well-adjusted, charming social climber who would one day be governor of Washington. There was no question in my mind that this very successful persona was just a cover for a very disturbed young man. And by this point, I had reason to believe that he indeed had the capacity for extreme anger and violence. And that's from Dr. Al Carlisle. And now, as you know, we got to check in with our girl, Liz. So when we, when we last left off with Liz, they were getting engaged and no one was supporting them. Her boss was clowning on her. Her fucking best friend, Angie, wasn't even down. Her parents weren't down, you know. So Liz says, on August 16th, that's, you know, the day after he was arrested. On August 16th, I drove down to the Bundy's cabin on the lake to meet Ted's aunt, who was driving back from back east. During the course of the conversation, Ted's mother mentioned that Ted had given his little brother a bicycle the week before when he was visiting Ted in Salt Lake City. She talked about how hard it was to get it home on the plane. I only heard half of what she was saying. I had given Ted a choice between me and the stealing. That bicycle had to be stolen. She immediately jumps to the conclusion that the bike is stolen. Probably right. I'm not knocking her, but like they've been dating at this point for fucking years and his stealing hasn't stopped. And she's like, I gave him a choice. Like, sorry, but you're not that important that he's willing to stop his fucking kleptomaniac habit. Like, obviously. I left early and called Ted the minute I got home. No answer. I called all evening without getting him. The fact that he wasn't home at one in the morning made me madder. I called him early the next morning and there still was no answer. I didn't get a hold of him until the next night. By this time, I was furious. I waded into him about the bicycle. I won't marry you unless you straighten yourself out, I told him. I expected him to defend himself, to try to make things right again. 
but he seemed only confused about why I was so mad. He had been sleeping when I called and he seemed disorientated. As we talked, I became aware that he sounded relieved when I was mad enough to call off the wedding. Just before I hung up, he said, I want you to know that I will always love you. I lay down on the couch. I was so mad I was shaking, but at the same time, I felt freer than I had in years. You can go straight to hell, Ted Bundy, I said. So this just is a fucking nightmare. Also, like she was calling him till one in the morning. Mama, go to sleep. Ain't no fucking dude worth losing sleep over calling him to one in the morning. Ma'am, one in the morning? I mean, would she have been so, I don't know. It's just whatever, Liz. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to True Crime Aficionados. My name is Misha Iman. If you like what you're hearing and you would like a little bit more, please go over to our Patreon, True Crime Aficionados, link in the description. Because... We have some bonus content, of course. Next week, I will air the interview with author Kevin Sullivan, who is even more of a fucking Bundy nerd than I am. This man is going on his sixth, seventh Ted Bundy book currently in production. It's He's great, truly. So head over to the Patreon if you can't wait until next week for the episode to be on the regular feed. It is on the Patreon. Please check out the Instagram, subscribe there, follow us on Instagram because I have all sorts of memes about Ted Bundy. Thank you to my cutie for making them for me because I am a geriatric. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review, subscribe, all that jazz. Spotify has some algorithms going on, so help me out. I love you very much. Thank you for all that you do. I hope that you had a wonderful and safe transition into the new year. (laughs) Shit's wild out there. As always, be safe. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for some cleansing purrs from my kitten Mimi. And keep your head on the swivel. Bye.